The brutal war that Israel is waging on Gaza is expanding day by day into a regional conflict as other countries are pledging to support the Palestinian people amid what experts from the United Nations have referred to as a potential genocide. In December, the political forces that govern the majority of Yemen announced that they would attack any ships going through the Red Sea that are planning on providing supplies to Israel. This has massive economic implications because it means that ships will have to be rerouted and instead go south around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and instead enter the Mediterranean through Western Europe. Iran has also called for blocking off the Strait of Gibraltar in order to prevent supplies from being sent to Israel. What this means is that resistance forces in the so-called Middle East, or better term is West Asia, are now attempting a naval blockade of Israel to block supplies from being sent to Israel in order to stop this brutal war on Gaza. Israel is very reliant on imports of energy and food, and most of those imports go through three main ports, two on the Mediterranean, including the port of Ashdod, which is quite close to Gaza, and also the Haifa port in the north. And also on the south, Israel has the port of Eilat, which connects to the Red Sea, going through the Straits of Tehran, which are controlled by Saudi Arabia, the resistance forces that govern Yemen are not able to block the two major ports on the Mediterranean, but they are able to prevent ships from transiting through the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, which connects the Arabian Sea to the Gulf of Aden into the Red Sea. And this is why the United States, including the U.S. government's Energy Information Administration, has warned for years about how strategically important the Bab al-Mandeb Strait is and why there was so much fighting for years over control of this geostrategic choke point. Now, it's important to understand that in addition to being extremely reliant on imports, Israel is located in a region, West Asia, that has numerous geostrategic choke points that could block off trade. I'm going to be talking about some of these choke points today, such as the Strait of Hormuz, which the U.S. government has referred to as the world's most important oil transit choke point. 21% of the world's petroleum supply flows through this narrow strait in the Persian Gulf, which if Iran wanted, it could close, which would prevent the export of most oil and also liquefied natural gas by the Persian Gulf monarchies like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar. Then there is also the extremely important Strait of Gibraltar, which connects the Atlantic Ocean into the Mediterranean Sea. And this is another narrow point and Iran and other resistance forces in the region have called for closing the Strait of Gibraltar in order to prevent shipments to Israel. So this conflict has major geopolitical and economic consequences, and today I'm going to be exploring them. Israel killed more than 20,000 Palestinians between the 7th of October and the 22nd of December. The vast majority of those Palestinians killed by Israel were civilians, including roughly two-thirds women and children. And the United Nations has called for a humanitarian ceasefire and aid to be delivered. However, the United States has blocked peace in Gaza by using its veto in the Security Council to prevent any resolution that would call for a truce or a ceasefire. At the same time, the United States has been sending billions of dollars of weapons, ammunition, and military aid to Israel to help it carry out this war, which, again, top experts at the UN have said threatens genocide of the Palestinian people, and yet the UN can do nothing to stop what they admit is a potential genocide because Washington is using its veto power to prevent the UN from doing anything. Meanwhile, top Israeli officials, including a member of the cabinet, have boasted that they are carrying out a new Nakba in Gaza, referring to the mass ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in 1948, 
in which the indigenous population was expelled in order to create the state of Israel. And the newspaper Israel Hayom, which is essentially a mouthpiece for the far-right Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has reported that the U.S. Congress supports an Israeli plan to ethnically cleanse the entire Palestinian population out of Gaza by basically bribing and pressuring Egypt, Turkey, Iraq, and Yemen to take the roughly 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza to resettle them as refugees in their countries so Israel can take over and colonize the entire Gaza Strip. The situation is obviously very extreme, and an Israeli scholar who is an expert on the Holocaust has referred to what Israel's doing as a, quote, textbook case of genocide, and yet the United Nations is doing nothing once again because the U.S. is holding the world hostage with its veto power at the U.N. Security Council, and also because many top officials at the U.N. are Western politicians who are very biased in the interest of Israel against Palestinians and, in general, against the global South, which represents the world majority. The only political forces in the region that are actually supporting Palestinians tangibly, not just with rhetorical statements, are Iran, the resistance in Lebanon, and the resistance forces in Iraq, Algeria, Syria, and Yemen. And today I'm going to be talking about Yemen and the so-called Houthi movement, as it's portrayed in the Western media, which completely misinterprets what's actually happening. In reality, 80% of the population of Yemen live under a revolutionary government in which the so-called Houthi movement, which is officially known as Ansarallah, is the main political force, but there are other political factions in this government based in the north of Yemen, and they have essentially tried to impose a naval blockade on Israel in order to support Palestinians who are being threatened with genocide sponsored by the Western powers. Most of the countries in the so-called Middle East, that is West Asia, host U.S. military bases, including Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, Oman, Kuwait, and also Jordan and Iraq. Furthermore, the U.S. military has been illegally occupying roughly one-third of Syrian territory in the north in alliance with Kurdish-majority proxies, the Financial Times newspaper reported that the U.S. military has 57,000 personnel stationed across the region, and there have been constant attacks by resistance forces in Syria and Iraq against the U.S. military occupiers to try to expel them. Furthermore, the Persian Gulf monarchies of the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, they normalized relations and support Israeli colonialism after the Donald Trump administration pressured them to sign a peace agreement with Israel. Saudi Arabia has completely abandoned the Palestinian people and does nothing to support them. And it's been well known for many years that behind the scenes, Saudi Arabia has had unofficial relations with Israel. For years, Saudi Arabia has been buying military technology and spy equipment from Israel. And in 2022, the Israeli media reported that dozens of Israeli business and tech executives visited Saudi Arabia using their Israeli passports in order to talk about trade deals and investments in Saudi Arabia. The Joe Biden administration was pressuring Saudi Arabia to normalize relations with the Israeli colonial regime, just as Trump had done with the UAE and Bahrain. And in fact, this is one of the main reasons that Palestinian fighters launched an attack on Israel on the 7th of October, because they thought that Saudi Arabia was on the verge of normalizing relations with Israel. And Saudi Arabia has already abandoned the Palestinians, but by normalizing relations with Israel, it would be a huge geopolitical blow to the Palestinian people's attempt to create their own state, which they have been guaranteed under international law, but denied for decades because the United States, which sponsors Israel, will never, ever, ever tolerate a Palestinian state. And as the Columbia University scholar Rashid Khalidi showed in his book, Brokers of Deceit, 
the United States has always prevented actual peace in the region and always supported the most extreme far-right Israeli politicians in their campaign to colonize all of the territory of historic Palestine. Furthermore, Israel has also been repeatedly bombing Syria and Lebanon. So in many ways, this war is already a regional war. But increasingly, more and more countries and actors around the region are getting involved. Now, one of the only significant powers in the region that has been providing tangible support to the Palestinians while Israel attempts a genocide is Iran. And Iran has not only provided military support to resistance forces in the region, but Iran has also called for OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, to declare an embargo of Israel to block oil exports and also gas exports to Israel. However, OPEC is dominated by Saudi Arabia, which has completely abandoned the Palestinians, and OPEC said, no, we are not going to put an oil embargo on Israel. Now, there is a historical precedent for this. In 1967, Israel colonized numerous territories belonging to neighboring Arab countries, including the Sinai Peninsula that was part of Egypt, including the Golan Heights, which is part of Syria and is still occupied by Israel to this day, and also the Palestinian West Bank. These are territories that have been illegally occupied by Israel since 1967, and every single year at the United Nations, the entire international community, excluding the U.S. and a few puppets, votes to condemn Israel's illegal occupation of these territories. So in 1973, Egypt and Syria launched a war to try to retake this territory that was illegally occupied by Israel. Now, they were defeated in this war in 1973, but in response, OPEC declared an oil embargo of Israel. At that time, Saudi Arabia was led by a slightly nationalist pan-Arab leader named King Faisal, and he was really the last Saudi leader who in some way tried to support the Palestinian people, and he, as the leader of OPEC, declared an oil embargo of the Western powers that had supported Israel in this colonial occupation. However, in 1975, King Faisal was assassinated by his nephew, who had lived in and been educated in the United States. And ever since, Saudi Arabia has had a series of U.S. puppet leaders. The current de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, has maintained a somewhat non-aligned foreign policy, refusing to get involved in the U.S. new Cold War on Russia and China. However, he has completely abandoned the Palestinian people, and he wanted to normalize relations with Israeli colonialism. Going back to this history of the anti-colonial struggles in the global south in the 1970s, Iran has called on OPEC to impose an oil embargo on Israel, but OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, has said no, they have refused to do so. So given this situation, the resistance forces in the region, not only Iran, but resistance forces also in Yemen, are attempting to impose their own naval blockade of Israel. Now, it must be emphasized that Israel has a key geopolitical weakness, which is that it is extremely reliant on imports, on seaborne imports. And the Israeli media has warned about this for several years. Back in 2021, the Times of Israel published an article warning that Israel has no strategy for managing the lifeline in the Mediterranean Sea. It noted that the Mediterranean provided the gateway for 99% of Israel's imports and it supplies natural gas to help power Israel. Washington's establishment foreign policy magazine warned back in October, just a few weeks into this war, that it could threaten Israel's imports. Foreign Policy Magazine noted that in response to the war, a major Taiwanese cargo shipping line canceled a planned stop at Ashdod Port, the southernmost port of the two main Mediterranean ports that Israel has, and the Taiwanese cargo shipping line cited the, quote, persisting unsafe situation. Now, Ashdod is located 25 miles from Tel Aviv, the major Israeli city, but it's also located about 31 miles from Gaza, where, of course, Israel is brutally bombing 
the Palestinian population, but where also Palestinian resistance forces are are also responding with attacks and missile attacks on Israel. And the Evergreen Line, this Taiwanese cargo line, decided it was no longer safe for its ships to uh, to arrive in Ashdod. So instead, it started diverting its ships farther north to the Haifa port. And now Haifa is having to absorb significant traffic from Ashdod. Foreign Policy magazine pointed out that Israel Israeli waters were already in the highest risk category for shipping companies, and now risk premiums are going up by several hundred percent. So it's becoming very expensive to ship to Israel. Insurance prices are increasing drastically. And at the same time, the article noted that Israel is highly dependent on imports. It cited the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which published a report in 2022, noting that Israel relies almost exclusively on imports for its consumption of sugar, vegetable oils and oil seeds, feed, grain, and other raw materials for the food industry, while its meat industry relies on imports of live animals. Israel imports almost three times as much food and agricultural products as it exports, and those products are imported through the Haifa port in the north and the port of Ashdod in what is the center of Israel, but in the southern port of the Mediterranean. And that is the port which is becoming increasingly risky, which is why now so many ships are instead going to the northern Haifa port, which is getting clogged up. Now, earlier I mentioned that this region has numerous geostrategic choke points that global trade routes rely on, and potentially resistance forces in the region could try to close those to impose a blockade on Israel. The most important of these is the Strait of Hormuz, which the U.S. Energy Information Administration has referred to as the world's most important oil transit choke point. And the fact that this is strategic is highlighted by the fact that in 2019, the U.S. government's EIA published this article. And then in November 2023, the EIA republished the same article titled the Strait of Hormuz is the world's most important oil transit choke point. This was an obvious response to Israel's war on Gaza and the possibility of it expanding further into a regional conflict. And in this article, the US EIA noted that the Strait of Hormuz has large volumes of oil flowing through on a daily basis, and they estimated that it represents 21% of global petroleum liquids consumption. In a newswire in October, Reuters referred to the Strait of Hormuz as the world's most important oil artery, and it noted that Israel's war on Gaza may spur Iran to take retaliatory action against ships in the Strait of Hormuz. And furthermore, it notes that vessels with links to Israel or the United States may face a heightened threat of attack within Israeli waters, the Mideast Gulf, the Strait of Hormuz, the Gulf of Oman, and Red Sea areas. That article was from October, and as of December, this is exactly what happened. The Yemeni government, the resistance forces that control the area in which 80% of the Yemeni population lives, they started to launch attacks on vessels that were bound for Israel. In response, the Israeli media noted that some of the world's largest container freight companies have temporarily suspended sending their vessels through the Red Sea. Now, the Israeli media falsely refers to the Yemeni northern government as the so-called Houthis and so-called Iranian proxies, which is propaganda. It's ridiculous. I'll talk about that later. But first, I should note that this is having a very significant economic impact. The Guardian newspaper reported that more than 100 container ships have been rerouted around southern Africa to avoid the Suez Canal. Instead, now hundreds of ships are going around South Africa's Cape of Good Hope. This adds about 6,000 nautical miles to a typical journey from Asia to Europe, potentially adding three or four weeks to product delivery times. In response to this, the US government announced that it's going to create a naval coalition in order to try to protect the Red Sea. However, there is a big problem with this. Countries in the region refuse to join this US government-led naval coalition, likely because they don't wanna get drawn into a larger regional war. 
and Egypt and Saudi Arabia, which are the most important countries which are actually located on the Red Sea, refused to join this U.S. naval coalition. Instead, the U.S. boasted, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin boasted that the U.S. government got 10 countries to join, but none of those countries is actually in the Red Sea. It's Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Seychelles, and Spain. The only country that's actually in the region is Bahrain, and Bahrain is not on the Red Sea. Now, today I've discussed how Israel has three main ports that are used for the import of products. The southernmost port, which connects to the Red Sea, is the port of Eilat. And Reuters noted that in response to these attacks by Yemen, there has been an 85% drop in activity on the southern Eilat port. So Yemen's attempt to blockade Israel is having an impact. However, to be fair, this article pointed out that the Eilat port is not nearly as important as the two main ports that Israel has in the Mediterranean, which are Haifa and Ashdod. And it notes that the Eilat port pales in size compares to the trade in those ports. However, Eilat is strategic because it offers Israel a gateway to the east without the need to navigate the Suez Canal. Here it's important to look back at history because in 1956, Egypt had a leftist anti-imperialist president named Nasser, and Nasser nationalized the company that ran the Suez Canal in Egypt. At that time, the Suez Company was controlled by British and French companies as a legacy of European colonialism. So Nasser, who was an anti-colonial leftist leader, he nationalized the Suez Canal. And what happened? Israel invaded Egypt and it had the support of the UK and France, the European colonial powers, because Israel is an extension of Western colonialism in one of the most geostrategic regions of the world. The fact that Israel was willing to invade Egypt showed just how strategic this was for Israel. And in particular, in the Suez War of 1956, one of Israel's main goals was to gain control over the Strait of Tehran, which is a very small strait with a few islands that connects into the Gulf of Aqba, which goes from the Red Sea into the Gulf of Aqba and connects to Israel's southern Eilat port. Now, this is still relevant today because in 2016, Egypt, which previously controlled the Tehran Straits, gave control over to Saudi Arabia, saying that Saudi Arabia, recognizing that Saudi Arabia controlled a few islands there in the Tehran Straits. And the Israeli media reported that Saudi Arabia, the Saudi monarchy, gave Israel assurances in writing over freedom of passage in the Tehran Strait. So this was another example going back years of Saudi Arabia having this unofficial relationship with the Israeli colonial regime and how Saudi Arabia has abandoned the Palestinian people and ensured security guarantees to Israel. However, the fact that Israel has access to the Gulf of Aqba connecting to its southern Elat port doesn't matter if ships cannot enter the Red Sea in the first place because the resistance forces that govern Yemen are blocking access of ships that go through the strategic Bab al-Mandab Strait, which once again, the U.S. Energy Information Administration referred to as a strategic choke point for oil and natural gas shipments. This is exactly what is happening Yemen's resistance forces, which govern 80% of the population, are preventing these ships from entering, which also means that they're unable to go through the Suez Canal, which is controlled by Egypt ostensibly. And this is another very important choke point. The World Economic Forum reported that 30% of the world's shipping container volume transits through the Suez Canal and 12% of the total trade of all goods pass through the Suez Canal. This is why Washington was so frightened by Yemen blocking the, the Baba Mandab Strait and why the U.S. military announced its attempt to create a naval coalition to defend Red, Red Sea shipping. Now, this brings me to the issue of Yemen and the so-called Houthi movement. 
the Western media constantly refers to this group as the so-called Houthi militia and constantly claims that they are Iranian proxies. This is ridiculous propaganda. First of all, they're not called the Houthis. That's the Western name. They're officially known as Ansar Allah, and they are indigenous Yemenis. They consist of people in Yemen who speak Arabic. They're not Iranians, and they emerged indigenously in the country in response to the history of U.S. drone wars and the U.S. invasion of Iraq and U.S. meddling in the region. This was acknowledged in a report published by the Brookings Institution, which is a mainstream think tank in Washington, in an article published by a former CIA agent named Bruce Rydell, who's a senior fellow for Middle East policy, and he served as a CIA analyst for 30 years. In this article at the Brookings Institution, he admitted that the so-called Houthi movement, that is Ansar Allah, has its origins in popular movements in the region, and in particular, in response to the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, which led to the increasing political involvement of what had previously been largely a cultural and religious group based in the north of Yemen. And he said, furthermore, more than six years of American support led by a neighbor most Yemenis hate, that is Saudi Arabia, including airstrikes, blockades, and intentional mass starvation of Yemenis are the characteristics of a war the United States has supported, which led to increasing popular support for Ansar Allah inside Yemen. And he admitted the Houthis have created a functioning government, which includes representatives of other groups, and 70 to 80% of Yemenis live under the control of this government that this movement created. In reality, the so-called Houthi movement has a lot of popular support in Yemen, and you can see this because they constantly have huge rallies. There are videos on social media. They have rallies in support of Palestine. And every 21st of September, they have a rally marking the revolution in 2014 in which the so-called Houthi movement, Ansar Allah, took over the capital, Sana'a, in Yemen and created a revolutionary government. And once again, they govern 80% of the population of the country. This is not just some militia. This is the de facto government in the majority of Yemen, and they govern in alliance not only with people who are part of their movement, but also with members of other Yemeni political parties, including socialists, including Nasserists, including nationalists. This stuff is not hidden. I mean, there's a lot of propaganda in the Western media, but so many so-called journalists are very lazy and they just regurgitate Orientalist tropes and propaganda fed to them by Western governments. The reality is that the government in that controls 80% of the Yemeni population, which is led by this movement Ansar Allah in coalition with other parties, they control government ministries. They have social services. They also have a significant military. And in fact... Many of the branches of the previous military that governed Yemen joined them in 2014 when they launched this revolution on the 21st of September. At first, they created what was called a Supreme Revolutionary Committee, and then they created what is known as the Supreme Political Council. And this is the political body that governs most of Yemen. The reality is that Yemen today is essentially divided like it was until 1990. Until reunification in 1990, there were two separate countries. One was North Yemen and one was South Yemen. And today, the borders are mostly the same. They're slightly different, but today we see basically the same political division. But it's important to understand that if you look at a map, South Yemen looks much bigger, but most of South Yemen is not populated. Three quarters of the total Yemeni population live in the northern part, which is governed by the Supreme Political Council led by Ansar Allah. The government in the south is technically recognized by the United Nations, but that's because the Western powers have imposed that, and the U.S. prevents any change in international recognition because the U.S. holds the U.N. hostage. In reality, the so-called internationally recognized government in the south of Yemen, it's 
It's actually a puppet regime and its former leader for years, who was a dictator named Abd Rabu Mansour Hadi, he was living in Saudi Arabia. He was not even living in southern Yemen. And he was widely referred to by people in Yemen as a Saudi puppet. In fact, Hadi was such a puppet that in 2022, the Wall Street Journal reported that Saudi Arabia forced him to step down and appointed its own hand-picked puppets to control southern Yemen. And now what's funny is the Wall Street Journal misleadingly referred to Hadi as a so-called elected president, but he was not actually elected. He did participate in a so-called election in 2012, but he was the only candidate, so he got 100% of the votes. It was not a real election. He was a dictator who was propped up by the Western powers, and it was a Saudi puppet living in Riyadh in order to try to control Yemen. Today, the so-called internationally recognized government based in South Yemen, its leaders largely live in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And basically, there is a proxy conflict between the UAE and Saudi Arabia who bribe local politicians and militias and tribes in South Yemen to try to win support. And the UAE has been colonizing Yemeni territory, including the islands of Socotra. And the southern government is controlled by a so-called presidential leadership council, which is largely dominated by separatists, which are called the Southern Transitional Council, which consists largely of Salafi extremists. And also they are backed by Israel. They are they support Israel and they have asked for support from Israel in order to fight the so-called Houthis, that is Ansar Allah, that is the government in the north of Yemen. And they, again, only represent around 20% in the south, these southern separatists backed by the UAE, allied with the US and Israel, they only represent around 20% of the Yemeni population. It's a complete farce. This is why the US government and Western media outlets try to falsely portray the so-called Houthis as Iranian puppets or Iranian proxies. It's projection for the fact that the people in southern Yemen that are trying to govern the country and claim to be the internationally recognized government, they themselves are actual puppets. If you want to understand Ansar Allah, there was a very interesting documentary published by a Saudi journalist named Safal Ahmad, and she published it at Frontline News, and it's titled The Fights for Yemen. In this documentary, Safal Ahmad interviewed numerous Yemeni leaders and from the revolutionary movement, from the revolutionary committee that was created after the revolution and they took control of Sana'a, the capital, in on the 21st of September 2014. And she noted that the so-called Houthi movement got a lot of support because they had an anti-corruption agenda. They were fighting against corrupt officials. And she also noted that they were being attacked by al-Qaeda and also extremist other Sunni forces, like from the Muslim Brotherhood and other far-right Sunni forces. And she noted that Al-Qaeda is fiercely opposed to the Houthis. Al-Qaeda's Sunni extremist beliefs mean they consider the Houthis to be heretics. And the Houthi movement is rooted in the Zaidi faith. And the fact that they are Zaidi Muslims, which are Shia, is part of the sectarian propaganda narrative that the that Saudi Arabia and the Western powers have spread to try to portray them as Iranian puppets. But in reality, Zaidi Muslims are not Twelver Shias, which is what most Shias are, including in Iran. In fact, they in, in, ter in terms of their Islamic jurisprudence, they're actually much closer to mainstream Sunnis. So yes, they are Shia, but they're not Shia in the same way that Iranians are. But this is part of the sectarian narrative. And in the, this report, this documentary, the Saudi journalist Safal Ahmad interviewed many of the Ansar Allah leaders, and she said that th at the heart of their Zaidi faith is the principle of rebellion against unjust rulers, and they were really motivated after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and they started to spread a revolutionary theory that combines Zaidi revivalism with an anti-imperialist, anti-U.S. agenda. And there's an incredible moment in this documentary where she asks an Ansar Allah leader about the accusations that they are Iranian puppets. And they said, this is not true. These are just accusations. And the 
Ansarallah leader said that yes, okay, we have political and moral support from Iran, but we also support Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Why is this insistence that we receive support from Iran other than wanting to turn the struggle in this country and the region into a sectarian one based on the American and Zionist agenda? This is an incredible moment because it shows that Ansarallah, which governs the majority of Yemen, is an anti-imperialist nationalist movement. And yes, they are religiously motivated like Hezbollah in, in southern Lebanon, but they are ultimately rooted in a nationalist struggle against colonialism and neocolonialism, against Israeli colonialism and U.S. imperialism and the constant invasions of the region and attacks on countries in the region and bombings. They are not Iranian puppets. Yes, they have received support from Iran, like Hezbollah in Lebanon, but they're not Iranian puppets. They are indigenous resistance forces rooted in national liberation struggles against neocolonialism by Western powers and their Israeli proxy. Israel is actually a proxy of Western colonialism led by U.S. imperialism. And these are resistance nationalist forces that, yes, have a religious identity that's part of their struggle, like, for instance, liberation theology in Latin America, which was, these are these progressive leftist, often socialist movements, but they were motivated by religious ideology. Even Hugo Chavez, who inspired the so-called Houthi movement in Yemen, Ansar Allah, they were inspired by Hugo Chavez. Well, Hugo Chavez himself talked about how Jesus Christ was a revolutionary, a socialist who cared for the poor and threw the money lenders out of the temple. So in many of these struggles, in these progressive nationalist struggles against colonialism, religion plays a role to inspire people to fight against their oppressors. And this is exactly what is happening across the region, in Yemen, in Lebanon, and in Palestine. And this is exactly why the Western powers supported Saudi Arabia and the UAE for years in a borderline genocidal war to kill as many Yemenis as possible, to try to overthrow the revolutionary government in the north of Yemen and to reimpose a puppet regime. This is why the United Nations reported in 2021 that 377,000 Yemenis had been killed in this war that began in 2015. I mentioned that in 2014, Ansar Allah led a revolution in Yemen that overthrew the Saudi puppet dictator Hadi and created a new popular government. Well, in response to that, in 2015, in March, Saudi Arabia, with the support of the U.S. and the U.K. and France, launched a brutal bombing campaign intentionally targeting civilian areas, trying to starve as many Yemeni civilians as possible, killing hundreds of thousands of Yemenis in this, in this genocidal scorched earth war. And mainstream media outlets like the Guardian newspaper in Britain acknowledged, quote, the Saudis could not do it without us. This was a war that could only be carried out because the U.S. and then also the U.K., but mostly the U.S. supported Saudi Arabia and also the UAE in this scorched earth war against the people of Yemen to try to recolonize Yemen because they saw Ansar Allah, the so-called Houthi movement, as a threat to Western neocolonialism in the region, and they were afraid that the revolution in Yemen could spread to other countries in the region, not least being Saudi Arabia itself, being that there is a, a small but important Shia minority in Saudi Arabia, which has been brutally oppressed by the Saudi regime with U.S. support, and they have held many big protests against the brutally oppressive Saudi regime, and U.S. support for this genocidal war on Yemen has been bipartisan. It started under Obama and it continued under Trump. And in fact, Donald Trump was one of the most pro-Saudi leaders in U.S. history. And he, in 2019, he vetoed a bill that was passed by the U.S. Congress that called for ending U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen, which would have immediately ended the war because Saudi Arabia cannot wage war in Yemen without U.S. support. Trump vetoed that peace bill. So anytime you hear some of Trump's ridiculous so-called MAGA supporters insanely try to portray him as an anti-war president, remind them of this. 
this completely criminal act in which Trump continued supporting this genocide in Yemen. And of course, Trump also, in January 2020, a year later, he killed Iran's top general, Qasem Soleimani, and he killed the Iraqi military leader, Abu Mahdi Mohandes, in an act of war. And Trump continued the military occupation of Syria and boasted of stealing Syria's oil. It was because of this genocidal war backed by the U.S. and the U.K., that in 2018, the United Nations declared Yemen to be the worst humanitarian crisis on Earth with millions of people in dire need of humanitarian assistance. This was a horrific crime against humanity with hundreds of thousands of people killed and blood on the hands of Western governments. And by the way, the so-called Houthi movement is not only popular just in Yemen, but also increasingly popular across the region. This was acknowledged in an article published by the New York Times in which they said, quote, Yemen's Houthi militia has been gaining popularity across the Middle East. And they noted that increasingly across the region, the war in Gaza has left citizens seething with anger at Israel and the United States and also at their own American-backed governments. And people have hailed the Houthis, that is Ansar Allah, as one of the, as one of the few regional forces willing to challenge Israel with more than harsh words. This is exactly what I was saying earlier. Some of the other countries maybe criticize Israel, but they don't do anything tangibly to support Palestinians. This article in the New York Times quotes a Yemeni medical supply worker who says that, that Ansar Allah has given us dignity because they are fighting back against Western colonialism. And the article noted that the, that the so-called Houthis call themselves Yemen's armed forces because they are. Now, the New York Times, which is, of course, U.S. propaganda, they talk about the so-called internationally recognized government based in the South, but they don't mention that that so-called internationally government recognized government only actually controls 20% of the Yemeni population, and their so-called leaders live in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and they're complete puppets with no legitimacy whatsoever. They don't mention that Ansar Allah runs the government with 80% with of the population, but even the New York Times has to acknowledge that Yemen has become very popular and they quote a Yemen analyst at the International Crisis Group, which is a Western propaganda organization. And, and this Yemeni analyst notes that people are, are very thrilled to learn that he is from Yemen. They're very excited and they talk about how brave the Houthis are. And this article notes that actors like the Houthis are the region's only hope to challenge what they see as Western hegemony. So this is as honest as you're going to get from the mainstream media in the U.S. acknowledging that these are legitimate national liberation forces in the region that are fighting Western neocolonialism and defending the self-determination and sovereignty of their peoples. Now, before I conclude here, I want to talk about one other geostrategic choke point that is relevant, and that is the Strait of Gibraltar. And Iran has said that it wants to close the Strait of Gibraltar in order to prevent shipments going to Israel through the Mediterranean. Now, Iran, of course, does not have a border with the Mediterranean. However, Iran is allied with resistance forces in Lebanon and Syria, which do have access to the Mediterranean. And about one-fifth of global maritime trade passes through the Mediterranean, including, again, 99% of Israel's imports. Now, this I'm reading a report here from the British newspaper The Telegraph, which is affiliated with the conservative Tory party, so it's often referred to as the Tory graph. And they ridiculously refer to the resistance forces in Lebanon and Syria as so-called proxies. But again, they are not Iranian proxies. Yes, they are politically allied with Iran, but they're not proxies. They are indigenous resistance forces that are part of a larger national liberation struggle against Western neocolonialism. And Israel is an extension of Western colonialism in the region. Now, this has led a lot of people to ask, how could Iran try to close the Mediterranean by blocking off the Strait of Gibraltar, considering Iran is not on the Mediterranean? And here we get to the issue of Morocco and the Western Sahara. Now, Morocco also has a reactionary monarchy like the Persian Gulf monarchies like Saudi Arabia, which is allied with Western imperialism. And Morocco has been allied with Israel. 
Under the so-called Abraham Accords, under the Trump administration, Morocco normalized relations officially with the Israeli apartheid regime, and Israel, in return, recognized Morocco's control over the illegally occupied Western Sahara region. However, the indigenous Sahrawi people who live in Western Sahara refuse to recognize the legitimacy of the Moroccan occupation, and they are led by a leftist anti-imperialist political movement called the Polisario Front. And the Polisario Front has refused to recognize Israeli colonialism, and when Israel recognized Morocco's illegal annexation of Western Sahara, the Polisario Front said, quote, such a position emanating from the Zionist entity or any other party to legitimize the Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara is null and void. That was a statement from the Sahrawi Ministry of Information. So well, in December 2023, the Moroccan monarchy officially honored three years of normalizing relations with the Israeli colonial regime. Meanwhile, the people of Morocco were flooding the streets in protest condemning Morocco's normalization with Israel and calling for supporting the Palestinian people. And like Saudi Arabia, Morocco has also been closely allied with the U.S. against Iran historically. That's slightly changing because China managed to broker peace and rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but still, you know, they have very complex and negative relations. Well, Morocco in 2018, this Western puppet regime, the monarchy in Morocco, it officially broke relations with Iran and accused Iran of supporting the Polisario Front, these leftist anti-imperialist rebels who govern the Sahrawi region in Western Sahara. They are they represent the Sahrawi people, the indigenous people who are being occupied illegally by Morocco in the Western Sahara. However, European governments have also joined the United States in recognizing the illegal Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara. The Trump administration officially recognized it, and also Spain has recognized it. And this was brought up by a member of parliament in a parliamentary question session in the Spanish parliament. And the parliamentarian noted that Morocco accounts for 50% of Europe's phosphate imports. And one of the biggest mines in Western Sahara is controlled by Morocco, which possesses around 70% of the planet's known phosphorus reserves. And Spain unilaterally recognized Morocco's sovereignty over Western Sahara in 2022 with dire consequences for the human rights of Sahrawis and Spanish companies are embedded throughout the Western Saharan phosphorus supply chain. So this has been referred to as blood phosphate because Western corporations and governments are exploiting the phosphate in the Western Sahara, which is illegally occupied by Morocco. So there are so many parallels between Israel's illegal criminal occupation of the Palestinian territories and Morocco's occupation of the Western Sahara, which is backed by Western imperialism. And in fact, during the U.S.-led coup attempt in Venezuela in 2019, there was only one country on the entire African continent that officially recognized the U.S. puppet Juan Guaido as the fake interim president of Venezuela, and it was Morocco. And why is that? It was because Venezuela, its revolutionary Chavista government, is allied with the Polisario Front in Western Sahara, representing the indigenous Sahrawi people. And Venezuela officially recognizes their government and has diplomatic relations with the Polisario Front-led government. So in response, Morocco has allied not only with Israel, but also with the far-right coup plotters in Venezuela and the Trump administration to try to overthrow Venezuela's elected president, Nicolás Maduro. So this brings in one other country in the region, which is Algeria. Now, Algeria had a revolution that overthrew French colonialism. And since then, Algeria has had an, a nationalist anti-colonial government. And 
Algeria has provided political support to the Polisario Front and has been long accused of providing military support to the Polisario Front, although Western propaganda also refers to the Polisario Front as so-called Algerian proxies, but they're not. Just like Ansarallah in Yemen, like Hezbollah in Lebanon, they are not proxies. Yes, they have allies, but the Polisario Front represent the indigenous Sahrawi people, and Algeria has constantly denounced the illegal Moroccan occupation of the Western Sahara and denounced Israel's recognition of Morocco's illegal occupation. So what does this all mean? Well, now Western governments are concerned that the Polisario Front based in Western Sahara could use the same strategy of Ansar Allah in Yemen and in solidarity with the Palestinian people to oppose Israel's Western-sponsored genocide, they may also try to launch attacks and prevent ships from going through the Strait of Gibraltar into the Mediterranean and therefore to give supplies to Israel. And on social media, there have already been a lot of propaganda claims made by Israel and its supporters claiming, without any evidence, that Iran and Algeria may support the Polisario Front fighters in order to do this as part of an attempt to impose a blockade on Israel. Now, they have no evidence of this, but this is what Israel's propagandists are saying is a very real possibility, citing what's already happening in Yemen. So this is the very complex geopolitical situation. And I know that this was a very long episode today, and I provided a lot of information, but I think it's very important to understand all of these details and also to understand how Western media propaganda narratives are misleading people and actually confusing us so we don't actually understand what is happening. The resistance forces in the region are becoming more and more powerful and very popular, as even the New York Times has acknowledged. These resistance forces, they have won the hearts and minds of people all across the region, and almost all of the governments in the region, which host U.S. military bases, are showing themselves to be complete puppets of Western imperialism who are doing nothing to defend the Palestinian people where they're, where they're victims of genocide carried out by Israel and sponsored by the Western colonialist powers. With that said, I'm going to conclude. I'm Ben Norton. This is Geopolitical Economy Report. If you like the work that we do here, please like and subscribe to our channel on YouTube if you're watching the video. It helps to promote this material in the algorithm. And if you prefer podcast versions, all of our videos can be found at the Geopolitical Economy Report podcast. And finally, if you really, if you appreciate our work, please consider supporting us. You can donate several ways by going to geopoliticaleconomy.com slash support. The best way is you can go to patreon.com slash geopolitical economy and you can become a patron. We rely entirely on small donations from viewers and listeners like you. We have no institutional support. We have no big donors. We are completely independent and grassroots. So with that said, I want to thank everyone for joining me for this very long analysis today. I'm Ben Norton of Geopolitical Economy Report. I will see you all next time.